This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. For coming tonight, my name is uh, Gabe Serra. I am an assistant professor of anesthesia, and I work in the Division of Pediatric Anesthesia at UCSF's Benioff Children's Hospital over in Mission Bay. And um, today is the Osher Mini Medical School for the Public series on LGBT trainees speak out. So we have three panelists here today who will um, be joining us in a few minutes. I have some questions for them, and then I'll open it up to our small audience here for questions. Uh, in the spirit of the current political uh, arena, I will talk about uh, this quote here, when all Americans are treated as equal, no matter who they are or whom they love, we are all more free by our President Barack Obama. And I think really that's the, the point that we want to focus on today. One of the things that UCSF is so great at um, is the diversity within our medical school class. We are probably the most, if not one of the most diverse medical schools in the country in terms of students, faculty, and staff. Um, our objectives tonight are to help members of our community understand the unique aspects of being an LGBT medical student or physician, to discuss the impact of traditional roles within the medical field and how they affect LGBT students and their ability to learn, and to learn about challenges faced by LGBT trainees throughout their medical fields. And um, I'm going to go ahead and invite our panelists. We have two medical students, Angel Rosario and Alex Lamb, and one um, just finished fellowship last week and is now a new faculty member, Dieter Adelman. So if you guys could please join us up here. So if you wouldn't mind just going around and introducing yourself, what your current role is, and um, if you would just maybe talk about one or two specific challenges you faced as an LGBT uh, student, whether in the application process or um, potential challenge you're thinking about when applying to residency, et cetera. Sure. Hi, everyone. My name is Alex Lamb. I'm a second-year medical student here at UCSF. One of the ones that immediately comes to mind um, actually was during my first year, one of the challenges, um, thinking of what I wanted to do between the summer of my first and second year. And so that's a very important summer in terms of boosting up your application. Um, I wanted to do something in terms of global health. Uh, I went to a supervisor or an advisor in the global health department. And um, midway through the meeting, uh, discussing like where I could do potential abroad research opportunities, she stops me and she hesitates. And it's an uncomfortable silence. And she says, I don't know how to make this less awkward, but um, you know, it may not be the best idea for like gay applicants or gay medical students to go abroad or to go to these certain areas. And so that was pretty big of a bombshell for me. I was really engaged. I really wanted to do something abroad, something in surgery. And she just said, you shouldn't do it because you are gay. Um, and she didn't ask about my sexual orientation. She just assumed so. And that was really hard on me. Um, but the upside of that is I didn't decided to do it through UCSF, but I went abroad anyway, and I did a plastic surgery internship after my first year in Taiwan. So that worked out OK. Um, the second thing that I'm thinking about um, is that I want to go into surgery. That's up there. Also, primary care, it's, I'm not sure yet. Um, and there are still many statistics out there, um, even one as late as early 2000s, where surgeons looking for potential residents will say, um, about 30% will say, I do not want an LGBT resident. And so that, again, is also very difficult. Um, to counteract that, though, I'm still very involved in terms of exploring surgery as an option as a medical student. And um, I haven't received any of that backlash. And I think if you are knowledgeable enough, 
if you seem engaged enough, that won't matter, and I don't think it's ever brought up. But it is something that is always in the back of my head when I'm talking to these surgeons who may not even want me there. Hi, good evening, everyone. My name is Angel Rosario. I'm also a second-year medical school student. Uh, I think one of the challenges that I'll focus on, um, a little bit about the application process and then what my time has been like uh, since I've been here. Uh, it's been really, uh, I, I'm a medical student at UCSF. Uh, so during the application cycle, it was just really interesting. You know, you have your personal statement, which is really supposed to be um, this time where you can really uh, share about what your journey has been like. Uh, and the reasons for why you want to go into a specific professional career. And for me, my identity as a gay man, um, a gay man that's also you know, a person of color, was really important for me to share. Um, and I, in my own personal life, have always, was always really comfortable with that identity that I held. But I never considered the implications that that would have while I was applying and what it would mean to out myself to people who I kind of don't know. Uh, and it was, it was strange to be living in a space where I'm comfortable and then to now have to go back and in a way think about how I, who I was and how I was portraying myself could potentially impact my career and professional goals. Um, luckily, I think I wound up in an environment where I feel uh, very affirmed in my identity in many ways here at UCSF. But at, uh, at the same time, it was also interesting to, um, or it's now interesting to reflect on how diverse our class is, um, both from an ethnic uh, perspective, racial and ethnic perspective, and then also within the percentage of those individuals in our class who identifies in L on the LGBTQ spectrum. Um, so while those percentages are relatively high compared to other medical schools, I have been a bit surprised about the challenges in being able to build an LGBTQ community um, here and how easy it is to tap into peers and faculty um, and staff who also identify as part of this community. Um, that was surprising, especially considering how um, on the spectrum of diversity, um, UCSF is, you know, tends to be one of the more diverse schools in our country, in, both from the perspective of students and staff. But yet, I had some trouble um, palpating that um, that sense of community for for my community. My name is uh, Dieter Edelman. I moved here last year from Europe. Uh, for fellowship. I think one of the challenges for me in my application process was when I thought about where to go for fellowship, I was offered a position in the state that were, when you come from Europe, you would think would be more conservative in the Midwest. And I was to move here with my uh, partner at the time, and I automatically excluded applying for a school in the Midwest because I thought, well, if I move there as a European with my boyfriend and my dog, my life would probably be a lot harder than going to a school here, for example, in California or somewhere else in Europe. So I think it has influenced my decision-making process on where to apply for fellowship and where I would feel more welcomed uh, compared to other places in the United States or in Europe. But when I think about my first interview here at UCSF, the question was, well, who are you, you going to bring uh, with you, I'm going to bring your wife. And it was like, no, I'm going to bring my, my boyfriend and my dog. And then there was like this like millisecond of silence, and then it was all clear, and there was never 
it was like, oh, that's great, uh, and that was it. So I felt welcomed even at the first, my very first interview here at UCSF. It was like, okay, that's great. Uh, we accept you, who you are, and who you come here with. And that was a really positive experience I've had. So speaking about positive experiences, one of the questions I have for you all, um, and I apologize a little bit for the lack of diversity on our panel, <laughs> but we had other people signed up to come who kind of represented the LGBT spectrum a little bit better, and unfortunately some of them weren't able to show up. Um, but I think we have a great group here today. Um, have you ever felt that your identity has been, a po has been positive, has affected you in a positive way in terms of your career as a student or um, in your professional choice? So one thing that everyone tends to feel in the beginning of medical school is the idea of imposter syndrome. Um, do I really belong here? Do I deserve being here? So luckily, my identity actually showed me very quickly that I um, did have a role in all of this. And so something that happens in every class and every lecture uh, that's frustrating to me is that no one can get sex and gender correct, um, even though they're very different. And so I can take that time to help educate people what those differences are, um, why you ask for pronouns, how would an interaction with someone who's LGBT be different. Um, so do you see the role in that? Um, in terms of advantages, it really depends on what you want to do. Um, very roughly speaking, I feel it's a disadvantage in terms of something like surgery. I know we can talk about diversity, but in certain surgical subspecialties, that doesn't matter, and it may work against you. But on the flip side, I currently have an HIV test counselor at EPI Wellness, and I'm sure that my background helps me um, identify and work better with other queer people of color. And I'm also the LGBT Research Center intern, um, graduate assistant, and so I'm helping design the LGBT Health Forum. So in those cases, I know that I can use my expertise or my generally better sense of knowledge compared to most classmates to my advantage and to help educate my peers, and that's one of the roles that I feel I have at this medical school. I think uh, with marginalized communities, there are... Um, there are inherent strengths that uh, oftentimes of resilience that, uh, that we oftentimes have to build in order to move forward in our lives. And um, I guess from a very general perspective, I think that some of the challenges that I've faced as a gay man and knowing that these challenges, uh, which now are long behind me, I've gone through and, and been able to come out on top. Um, Having that, uh, that awareness about my personal life trajectory uh, and how I'm still here and alive and present um, are ways that I consistently affirm, um, in ways that my identity serve to, um, to keep me going. Um, that's from a very broad perspective. Um, I think uh, more specifically, I... Um, I reflect on times when, oftentimes, uh, when we're interacting with patients uh, who may identify on the spectrum, it's just really valuable to be with someone who you feel a community with, and you feel like you can understand the nuances of potential struggles that they, um, like there are certain things that don't need to be communicated about what it's like to be in a medical interaction. Um, and I think that those are absolutely powerful things that uh, I can leverage in a patient interaction from, from that standpoint. I think as a positive experience for me during medical school, 
uh, when you started as, as a first-year medical student, you don't really know where you belong or how to connect to the medical world. So back in Vienna, where I trained uh, during medical school, there was this group of uh, gay physicians who met like every other month, and they also invited medical students. So I went to one of their meetings and was instantly integrated in their group and had a peer group I could relate to and could help me with my questions and challenges back as a young medical student. And I think it was that helped me a lot to find people who thought, like I would think, who might have faced the same problems and to connect to their world. So I think that gave me an advantage uh, over non-LGBT students back then. So Alex, you've touched on this a little bit about uh, your specialty choice. And uh, there was actually an article that came out uh, two days ago uh, that talked about, in the literature, that talked about the specialty choices that LGBT students tend to make, and they tend to be more primary care specific, pediatrics, family practice, internal medicine. Um, And they tend to shy away from the uh, specialties that are perceived to be more conservative or actually statistically are proven to be more conservative or occupied by more conservative physicians such as anesthesiology, surgery, Etc. How do you feel that your um, sexual orientation or gender identity has influenced your decision making into what specialty you were thinking of? And Dieter, how did it affect your choice when you made yours? Yeah, so that was very, very upsetting. Um, I think it goes beyond just sexual orientation. Um, a lot of the fields I was looking at in the beginning, um, even if you look, um, it could be like 95% straight white men. And so even then, like just not having women on the faculty, that is already incredibly bothersome for me. Um, it is true, a lot of the great, great LGBT um, mentors that we have here are in primary care, infectious diseases. And in fact, I think that's incredible because they were at the forefront of the HIV AIDS movement here at UCSF. Um, I wrestled with that a lot my first year, and I think I still haven't made a definitive choice of what I want to go into. But funny enough, that in a way, rekindled the fire of me going into surgery, despite the fact that it has the, the most like Republicans. It's pretty conservative. Um, it's almost the idea that if I want it so bad, I will go into it anyway, and I can disrupt the system from within. And that's how I will invoke change. And um, we can even see that in terms of, even though our medical school is quite diverse. You see a big drop-off in diversity when we go into residency here, or if we even talk about faculty. Um, there's like another study that I saw that uh, countrywide, uh, about like a few years ago, the number of deans that were Asian, for example, is 0% because no one was Asian. Um, if you look at women, it's like 5 to 10%. And so one of the ways that I feel like I can make changes from within, even if in the beginning it's unwelcoming, I feel like I can still make that change. Yeah, I, d- I definitely agree with Alex's o- approach here. Uh, I have yet to decide what specialty I want to go into um, or where I'm thinking at, at the moment. But I um, wouldn't say that it's a primary uh, focus of mine in terms of thinking about my identity. I, uh, my approach is going to be where I feel, um, where is my where does my interest lay? And if that is within a specialty that is not as affirming um, or more affirming, I'm going to, I'm going to deal with it once I get there and do what I need to do to create environments where, um, where I feel valued and I feel affirmed. And I think that also uh, says a lot about if we're in a certain specialty where we as LGBT 
folk don't feel affirmed, then what does that mean for the patients that we're serving that are potentially coming in and also share these identities? So not only is it valuable for us to make whatever changes culturally we need in whatever specialties we go into, but also not just for us so that we're comfortable, but also for the patient, you know, equally as important for the patients who are getting treated. Um, and so I kind of see that, um, the, the culture of whatever specialty I go into, hopefully not limiting where I ch- uh, choose to go into. And if it doesn't really align with who I am as a person doing what I need to do to make changes in that environment. So uh, thinking back, I'm not sure if my uh, identity influenced what speciality was going into after medical school. I think, as I said before, now thinking back, it influenced the places I went to. So after medical school, I wanted to go to a liberal city, so I went to Berlin for in, from an intern year. And then I went back to Vienna, and then I came to San Francisco. So I'm not... I think for myself, it didn't influence the speciality, but where I wanted to live. And I was fortunate enough to be able to to pick the cities I wanted to go to that where I knew I could li- live uh, comfortably and safely, uh, no matter who I loved or how I felt. One of the things we hear about are LGBT people leaving <clears throat> excuse me, areas where there is perceived unacceptance and coming to places like New York, San Francisco, Los Angeles, Chicago, Miami, etc. Um, and we see that happening with medical students, and we see that happening with faculty. And um, do you think, and I've just asked these questions just to spark a discussion, do you think you have an obligation to try to go somewhere, or do LGBT physicians have an obligation to try to go to those places to make change? That is a good question. Um, so funny enough, I applied to medical schools in New York City, Los Angeles, and San Francisco, exactly where you listed, um, that did play a factor. Oh, it's hard. Um, so I was born and raised in Los Angeles with like raging atheist parents, and then I went to Texas for undergrad. So that was quite the experience for me. Um, funny enough, it's hard because I don't want to have like that hindsight bias. This is twenty twenty, but I learned a lot from living in Texas for four years. Um, it really taught me a lot about death and dying, spirituality, and medicine, and how that affected patient care in terms of even like something like spiritual health. And I felt that for me, that was incredibly important in making me more more open-minded and a better physician. It's hard now to think um, when I return back to the South or to the Midwest, um, to be frank, I think I still would stick with Californian schools, but that's also because I was born and raised here, my family's here, all my most of my friends are here. So I would probably want to stay in California, but I do also see the value in going back to those communities, especially when there are not many LGBTQI competent physicians in those areas. This is a really uh, difficult question for for me. Um, When you posed it, I think the first thing that came up for me was this idea, and I'm still grappling with whether this is the, um, if they're analogous in this way, but this idea of a minority tax, um, where if you come from a certain community, um, you are oftentimes... um, pulled in a certain direction to drive diversity um, at an institution that you're at, whether that's a workplace or an academic environment. And by doing so, you um, you might take away from other opportunities that are available for you professionally. And so um, 
I, it's just it's difficult because I um, there are certain places where um, I guess there are different. <coughs> Our community is struggling everywhere, right? There are, str- there are struggles uh, geographically. Um, some areas may have more of a burden than other areas, um, and I think, and I think, I personally think that there's a responsibility to um, do what you can to um, create spaces for communities of where you come from, um, but whether you need to do it in the where the problems are the worst or whether you need to go to or whether you go to a place that is um you know that's more affirming i think that that's really an individual decision and um i think pushing the system um and culture in a place that you're comfortable with um and that you want to be is probably more valuable than um, doing something just because you feel a responsibility to do it. So I think that drive should come from a genuine place. Um, and I personally probably wouldn't force myself to be in an environment that I don't want to be just because um, of the potential impact that I could make. Um, but I don't know. It's, it's, really, it's really difficult to answer. I think, Angel, I agree with you that it would be a big sacrifice when you trace somewhere where you feel accepted and then you've lived somewhere for 12 years where you felt like you belonged to and then going back to an area where you don't feel accepted to make a difference it, well you two were talking I thought whether it was selfish or not to think that I would not want to go back but I think I would rather try to make a difference from where I am now and reaching back out to people who might still be in that area who I know or can relate to than making the sacrifice of moving back to where I might not be able to live my life how I wanted to live it. So along those lines, when applying for medical school, um, did you do this or when you were going to apply to residency? Um, one of the questions I get asked a lot about for, for medical students who come that I advise or that are my mentees are... Um, and whether it's LGBT issues or certain very you know progressive causes that they're involved in, is how out should I be on my application? How uh, you know, for lack of a better term, one medical student asked me, how gay should my application be? How um, how much should I embrace my um, my queerness in my application or in my you know should I talk about everything? Should I list everything? Should I list that I worked at Planned Parenthood for years before I applied because? The, somebody who's reading my application may view that in a negative way. How, um, in terms of medical school, if you don't mind sharing, how out were you in your application, and do you feel that you will be more or less out in your residency application or tailor your application to, will you send a more conservative personal statement to, say, a program in uh, the South versus sending a very progressive personal statement to the UCSF surgery program if you choose surgery or what other, or what other specialties you're considering? So this question has been out there for a very, very long time. There are a lot of articles written on it. I think one of them, one of my favorites is called On Being Out in Medicine. And basically this question is asked every year for the last, I don't know how long. Um, one of the advi- pieces of advice that I heard is either if it's a huge part of your personal statement, if it's really meaningful to you, then say it, if you're being honest with yourself. For me, it was more, it was a good segue is relevant to what the work I did in Houston, Texas was at the time. And so I mentioned it 
almost in passing, actually, um, when I talked about one of my most meaningful activities on the app. And it was, uh, I worked at an HIV AIDS hospice in Houston. And so working with a lot of um, queer people who were dying. And so the ability for me to connect with them and the reason why that was so important to me was because of my own sexual identity and sexual orientation. So I definitely brought it up there. In terms of residency, that's also difficult. Um, even if I try to list activities, I think it's probably pretty obvious that I do identify as queer because I've worked, again, as an HIV test counselor for queer people of color, API wellness, and I'm doing LGBT Resource Center, doing the health forum. So it will be brought up. But again, another piece of advice that I actually got here was for something like surgery, it shouldn't be your focus because it's not surgery. And so they weren't trying to make me quiet or become silent because of that. It's just that it's not surgery. Um, so I will definitely list it because it is important to me. It's what I did here, but I wouldn't make it my main focus. Like I want to become a surgeon because I did the health forum. They're not exactly relevant, but I still will include it. Yeah, for me, uh, uh, during my medical school application, I was pretty out in my application. Um, and, you know, a lot of the advice that I heard from other LGBT uh, people who had applied or who, um, who had applied in the past was that would you really want to be in an institution that is not valuing your identity? So putting it out there is... Um, is helpful to um, to gauge like what sort of place am I about to enter? Um, do they value the perspective of my life experience in a way so that they want to offer me an interview or want to accept me into into their school? And so um, it's almost I mean it's like a dual process, right? Sure, we're applying to schools and we hope that we get. Um, an invitation for uh, an interview. But at the same time, there's also this process where we have to evaluate the schools that we're applying to. And is this a place that I see myself going to? Is this a place that I want to be? And I think uh, part of, for me personally, sharing my identity from uh, my medical school application was a uh, strategy to be able to test um, which environments I think would, would affirm who I am. Uh, for when it comes to residency applications, um, I would probably say that that one's difficult because I think uh, at, at that point it will focus more on my um, my application would focus more on my my experiences that make the case for me to go into a specific specialty. I think if it uh, if my identity comes, which it, I mean, regardless, uh, being being a person who's LGBTQ and a person of color is going to benefit patients, whether I'm in a specialty that um, where it's important for me to share that information or whether it's not from a clinical perspective. Um, just my identity in and of itself lends to um, to be able to help patients. And so um, I don't know. It's, it's a, I haven't quite decided that, but I think I would feel comfortable sharing that. And um, I don't think it would if I feel inclined to share it, I don't feel any resistance to do otherwise. I agree. I think if you're looking to apply for a place where you're going to live at least four years of your life, you have to think, do you have to pretend to be somebody else in order to get there? And I, if I have to pretend to be somebody else or somebody who I'm not, I would probably not want to spend four years of my life there. Would it 
no matter whether it's for medical school or for residency. Uh, that's probably easier said than done. And what I did is uh, I mentioned it during my interviews, and then I looked at the reac reactions I would get uh, from whoever was interviewing me. And then when I saw that they were comfortable with what I told them, I felt more comfortable going to that place or ranking it higher uh, on my own list than to a place where I thought, well, they would probably not be comfortable with uh, my life. What can you offer your patients, your school, your community, because of who you are? Um, two examples I can think about are, one, when I'm HIV test counseling, I think it's pretty easy for me to connect to the people, my clients. Um, I don't feel like there's any awkwardness. Like, I'm okay using gender-neutral terms. Asking about it, it's not a big deal. Ask, asking about sexual practices, I don't get uncomfortable around that, so it's very easy for me to talk about that, and then, in return, the client feels very comfortable as well. Um, one of the biggest things that I learned is that, despite the fact that we are in San Francisco and we're at a good medical school, your classmates won't necessarily know a lot of the things that you think they might know. Um, so one of the biggest challenges for me in medical school has not been the material. It's been, sorry, that comes off funny. I thought undergrad was harder. That's just personal. But um, what has been really draining but also very enlightening has been educating my peers who are in the same year as me. It's, it's, a bit, it's actually very surprising how um, that they don't know about certain things. Um, but it's just being patient and making sure that, you know, I'm working off of what previous people have worked on, and it's almost a duty. I'm not required to do it, but it really, I have to do it justice and really disseminate that information. I mean, I could just stay silent during these like small group discussions and avoid it all, which actually I did do in the very beginning, but now I felt more of a role of, no, this is my role in helping educate these future providers so that their patients will feel more comfortable. Yeah, I think I, I would have to agree with Alex there um, in terms of if if you're in an environment where you see an, an injustice and you're a group that's directly impacted by that, we have a responsibility to um, to do what we can to to address that. Um, and there aren't uh, any. It's tends to be things that are like microaggressions um, that can come up, and I think that there. I'm not going to just stand there and watch things happen when I have insight that I could provide in making things better um, culturally at a, at a place that I'm working and learning at. So uh, I think that just by, again, by my the nature of my identity and my inclination and desire to um, create spaces where uh, people like me can feel comfortable and patients can feel comfortable drives... Um, drives me to be more engaged in uh, in doing what I can to create those safe spaces. So in my specialty in anesthesia, we only have a couple of minutes to connect with our patients before we take them back to the operating room. And many patients bring their families to the pre-op area. And I think being uh, gay myself helps me when I see a non-traditional family waiting for uh, one of their relatives to be taken back to the operating room and making them feel welcome and comfortable just as any other 
any other traditional family I would meet in the pre-op area. And I think there's this like special connection you have where you realize, oh, um, they know that I understand how their family is made up. And it doesn't take a lot of explanation, but I think that special connection uh, is there and it has helped me connect uh, with my patients and their families. So I think we've talked a little bit of, or a lot about the um, your interaction within the medical system with other medical professionals, uh, be it students, attendings, et cetera. Uh, you, as first and second year students, you may not have had a ton of interaction with a lot of patients outside of the, a lot of the volunteer work that you've done um, in the more traditional setting of the hospital. But are you um, out? Do you are you out to your patients, or do you feel um, it's something you need to even mention or talk about? And have you ever had a bad reaction from a patient? I think, just reflecting a little bit, I don't think I've ever brought it up myself. Um, I, don't, I can't recall a situation where I've been asked. The last time maybe was when I was working at a hospice, um, and I just answered frankly, yes, I am gay. Um, but honestly, I don't have that much experience in terms of UCSF patients. I don't think I've frankly been asked that question yet. Um, yeah, I agree in terms of not having so much clinical experience, but recently I went through an interesting um, experience where um, we have these stickers that we're able to um, to put on our badges, which kind of send you know the message to anyone like, hey, I'm like, I'll, you know, I'm a safe space. I'm like a safe person, and I am an advocate. Or you know, you can. It, you don't know if the person identifies as part of the community or is just. Um, an ally of the community, right? But it was very interesting because I had the sticker and, and like, I'm proud to be a, a gay man, but there, there was a, set, a split second where I was like, what implications is me putting this sticker on my ID badge going to have for the um, interactions that I have with patients? Um, and I said, you know, I'm, I'm going to put the sticker on. I, I need to put the sticker on because if someone because this sticker is the reason that it's there is to um is to develop relationship is to improve the health of someone who um feels that they're getting services from a system they're not sure is this system going it, it, going to validate who I am? Are they going to treat me in with respect in the same way that they're going to treat people who, you know, who aren't part of this community? Um, and then the alternative is that I, someone will say something to me or someone will react in a way that is less than, um, than positive. And there I also have a responsibility to, um, to educate. And I think that that's, uh, that can be a little bit tricky. I'm sure as we go into our clinical years, uh, so some of those situations will arise, but I feel a responsibility to engage even patients if need be in dialogue in a way that um can educate them um in in whatever ways needed so i look at that as the the sticker provides a opening to a safe space to somebody who doesn't feel safe mm -hmm. the negative response of the sticker is from somebody who's in a place of privilege who doesn't probably already feels safe. Mm. That's how I look at that mm. sticker. 
so I think it's good. I don't actually have one, but I would like to get one. I don't know where to get one, actually. <laughs> so uh, it's interesting you bring up the sticker because I've, I just started working at UCSF last year, and I saw people walk around with the sticker. I don't have one myself, and I've been... Every time I see someone with the sticker, I'm like, oh, I, you should wear one of those stickers too, but then you put it up back in the back of your mind. And I think now reflecting upon it, it would be important to to show your patients, okay, you're safe and you can talk. You don't have to hide whatever you want to tell me or put it like, or change what you want to say, just not to have to uh, protect yourself from me. So, And I don't think during my career, patients have directly brought it up, but sometimes they assume they make a comment or Or do you go for dinner with your wife? Or like those short comments. And then some, back when I was a resident or a medical student, I think I didn't have the courage to say, oh, no, I don't have a wife, I have a boyfriend. But in the, the last year, I think, I have become more confident in saying, oh, no, uh, my boyfriend and I are going on to a ski vacation next weekend or something, or we're going to go there for dinner. So... It has taken a long time, but I, it, I'm slowly getting comfortable talking about it without having even to think about it twice. Alex, you've talked a lot about being your class educator. Um, and Angel, you brought up the minority tax, this concept of trying to fill a role. Um, you know, somebody says, oh, I think Angel would be great for this committee, but it's not because they think you'd actually be great for the committee. It's because they need you know, someone of color on the committee or they need a gay person on the committee. Um, and like you said, it can take away from your desire or time needed to do something else that maybe you view as more important for your professional development. Where does your responsibility end in that? Uh, you know, when can you say, this is not my job anymore to fill this niche, to fill this role, to, to be this person, you know? I will definitely advocate that it's, No one can make you do it. It's not your duty. Um, it's not your role to educate people on how they're being ignorant. Um, it's not your job. It's your own personal decision to do it. And for me, that was, it took time. Um, as I mentioned earlier, I was avoidant in the beginning. Like, I can't believe they just said that. And it's not even just about sexual orientation. There's a lot of, a lot of things that people say, like, wow, I can't believe you just said that. Like, wow. <laughs> Oh, you graduated from Harvard and you're here. Um, it's ultimately up to you. Um, I, too, have gotten, I guess, more confident over the years where it's, it's a duty for myself. And just seeing the work that other people have put in, I would do them an injustice by not saying anything. Um, but honestly, there's no pressure to do it and there's no rush. It really is your own decision. I think for me personally, it's something that I have to take some time to look inside of myself and see the ways in which some of the activities or things that I'm invited to or the things that I want to do are going to fill my spirit and um, make me feel whole. And then I think part of that is also considering uh, w what are the goals of the things that I'm going to be participating in. Um, and. I've been told that as, you know, once you finish residency and you're kind of a practicing licensed uh, doctor that you, there are opportunities that people are always asking you, like, do this and can you do that? Can you be on this committee? Um, and 
in many ways, I feel like my medical school experience has been a bit of a microcosm, maybe of what could potentially be in the future. So I think that as I've engaged in the different opportunities that have been presented to me, I've had to look inside and reflect and weigh the things that are valuable to me and how the different activities that I uh, can participate in will will either enhance or take away from those values. Um, So it's a very, I think, individual um, decision. Um, But for me personally, I have this like, there's just this flame that's like, you got to do this. You got to do this because like, you don't know the ways in which something that you might share or some insight that you have can change an environment in a positive way. And it's really difficult to quiet that, but you can't do everything. So, um, yeah, I think I try to keep myself in check. So I haven't asked the question myself before, so I, I don't know if I have anything to add. That. <laughs> okay, those are all my questions. Anything? I'm going to open up to the audience. Um, any questions out there? Anybody has? If I have a burning one that goes right back to the beginning of the, of the thing, and if I don't get it out, forget it. Um, Alex, you mentioned early on when you were talking about <laughs> your first answer to your first the first question that, and I correct me if I got the statistic wrong, that 30 percent of I think you mentioned surgeons don't necessarily want an LGBT resident. Were you speaking specifically about, sur- two parts, sur- specifically about surgeons, or were you speaking specifically about your follow-up about the more conservative specialties as a whole? And if you were speaking about, I guess it's either one, um, what is that about? And so what does it, what is it about the more conservative specialties, this blew my mind, would not want an LGBT resident? So the question is about the 30% statistic that Alex brought up earlier. Um, is that at every program in general, or is that at specific programs? And then, you know, what is kind of the background of that? Or what do you think is the, the background of that? It blows my mind, too. Um, I don't know the answer to that, and that's why it's so frustrating, because how are you going to judge my skill as a surgeon, my technical skills, if I am gay? Like, how does that matter? I don't know the answer to that, um, and that's what I'm also looking for. Um, So that was specifically for surgeons. That's the one that I heard about. In terms of, like, conservatism, it's actually really interesting. I think several people have been tweeting about it in the last few months. There's actually a breakdown by subspecialty of how liberal and how conservative those groups are. So in a way, you can almost imagine that infectious diseases, primary care, much more democratic. Something like, I think, surgery, dermatology, ophthalmology, anesthesiology, actually, yeah, are on the more conservative sides. And there's like this strange, this isn't an actual statistic, but like what goes on in my head. Um, and it's kind of weird. Uh, the more competitive specialties are also the ones that are more conservative. So wrestling with all of those concepts. Um, but I can't give a good answer why that matters so much. Yeah. I think what we also see are those specialties. Um, they did, the New York Times last week or the week yeah. before had this uh, graph, and it broke down political party preference of 20-something thousand physicians that they pulled. And um, so the the surgical specialties, the procedural-based specialties, radiology, um, interventional radiology, anesthesia, the ones that Alex mentioned, tend to be on the more conservative side. I think why is that? I think it's a lot of it is self-selection. I think that people who really care about human rights and the progression of human rights and the progression of equality for their patients and for themselves 
tend to go into pediatrics to care for children or tend to go into infectious disease to care for HIV-positive patients or tend to go into OBGYN to care for underserved women. So I think that there's a little bit of self-selection. And then, unfortunately, as we see more and more of the statistics, it becomes worse and worse or better and better, depending on how you look at it, that those people self-select uh, for those specialties. It's kind mm-hmm. of the concept of how everybody moves to L.A., San Francisco, New York, et cetera, Seattle. Uh, the same thing is happening with medical specialties if you viewed the specialties as cities in a way. Just a quick add. I think it is also feed forward um, because in a way we would want to avoid the more conservative ones where we wouldn't be as connected. And a lot of the mentors we have are not in those specialties. I I mean, I haven't been like 100% super active about this, but I have yet to meet an LGBT surgeon here. Um, so it is also feed forward. It's not just about them. It's also about how we choose our own specialties. I'm trying to think if I know an LGBT surgeon. Right, exactly. <laughs> do we know one? Yeah. I know one at where my old institution, which was actually very conservative, but I do. Not sure that I know I'm here. Same. Oh, wait, no, I do actually. I know three. Talk after <laughs> they're all in the same special thing. <laughs> uh, what other questions? Go ahead. Yeah. So, as a gay man, it's important for me to find, you know, to start really basic with a primary care physician who's also gay. Um, but what I find really interesting is that um, when, when you sort of go in and search, you can't really search by those parameters when you're looking for a gay doctor. You can search, and so I, I sort of the way I found um, LGBT doctors in the past is I searched for someone who specializes, like you just said, in, in HIV AIDS, yeah. um, someone who's maybe practicing in the Castro, and even then it's such a crapshoot. And I'm wondering if that's if that's not offered as one of these sort of things. You, you can check male, female, you can check by geography, you can check by uh, specialty, but you can't really, uh, I don't know what the what the network or the resources are to find an LGBT doctor as a patient. So mm-hmm. I'm wondering um, if you have any thoughts on that, uh, on how to go about doing that. Or, you know, because it's kind of a crapshoot in a lot of ways. Because it's not, I, I'm guessing there's no self-ID as a, from the physician side on, you know, identifying yourself as LGBT so that you can make that available for patients. So the question is how to find an LGBT uh, physician, and my, I have a reverse question for you: Is it important to have an, an, a physician who identifies as LGB or T, or um, is it important to have a physician that identifies as an ally, just out of curiosity? I guess it would be either. Okay. Um, I mean, probably I would. If I were to be completely honest, probably more um, important for them to actually be. Okay. That's. I'm just curious from the physician side of things. I think, I don't know, uh, we definitely don't have that checkbox on the like UCSF Medical Center website. Um, I, it could be something we could look into. There is an out list, it's called, where a lot of physicians go, how do you feel like you go, go talk? Okay, no, it's exactly what he's saying. So historically, UCSF has had an out list, which has a list of staff, residents, and students who all identify as LGBT and are out. That list has been taken down for about a year and a half, whether they are uncomfortable having a name on there, so they're revamping the list, remaking it, or they've left the institution. Um, I think that's a project that's supposed to be out again in the winter, early springtime. Um, so that question obviously happens, um, it gets asked a lot. And so whenever they get referred to the LGBT Resource Center, they actually just refer them to GLMA, which is Gay Lesbian Medical Association. 
there's a list of doctors on there, um, but it is complex because just because a physician is LGBT doesn't mean they're LGBT competent or care about those things. Um, so it is something. It, it, in an ideal world, it'd be an LGBT physician who is also LGBT competent. Um, I think they're working on that list, and I think it'll be out around winter or spring. Which is interesting because that's just UCSF. Yes. You know, which is terrific in San Francisco, but what about Kaiser or what about, you know, interesting? And I would imagine it's not PC or it's not allowed. Maybe it's, it's allowed for you as doctors to be able to say, I identify as LGBT uh, or an ally. Uh, Dr. Sinner, like you said, or, but I, I don't know that anybody, if it's if it's even legal for us to be able to go and look up someone's LGBT status, I don't, I, I don't even know if that would be legal, so it's, it's to me, really interesting as well. I think, you know, we all have as faculty, um, and I think even the students do, you have a page, like if you have the phone book page on the UCSF website, and there are a lot of things you can check and add, you know, where you went to school, what your training is in, what your interests are in, et cetera. So some physicians don't ever update it. Some do and may put to that LGBT health as of, of interest to them. But uh, I think it goes into what Alex said is, does that mean they're competent or does that mean that they are LGBT or maybe they're just an ally? Um, I think as long as it's self-reported, if it's voluntary on the side of the physician, I don't see why... Um, they wouldn't be able to check that box. I mean, I think you check that you speak German. I think it lists it. I, I check that I speak Arabic. It's all listed on the, um, you know, so it could just be another box that the physician could choose to select or not select. I think that's a great idea. But how do we spread that across UCSF? I think just like many things that happen in the University of California system, we kind of create them and then try to disseminate them to other organizations. Yeah, and I was just going to say that the GLM, uh, just to re-echo that, I think I remember <coughs> personally checking that website out at one point it's just the gay lesbian medical association and they have uh and that's a national database if i if if i understand it i just also find it interesting i think at least once a year for a couple times a year i see friends even just on social media say i'm looking for a gay doctor does anybody know (laughs) yeah you know who like do you have someone you can recommend and 10 people chime in i think that's pretty effective but that's just sort of an informal network kind of way versus yeah, I think the outlist will be helpful, and we can also, you know, we can look into uh, getting that as a another checkbox on the on the when you go to search for a position through the UCSF site, because it's great for primary care, but it also, um, you know, as we talked about, surgical specialties are very important. I'm actually working on a project now to try to increase professionalism and competency for physicians and medical students within perioperative settings. So dealing with patients who are coming in for, um, for surgeries, you know, as transgender individuals or as a lesbian coming in with uh, their wife or as a, sing- a same-sex parents coming in, all of these um, interactions that people have that can be um, surprising or difficult for the staff member not because they're not supportive of that individual, but just because they're uncomfortable or they're not competent to know how to address it. So um, I think that that's a great point that you brought up in terms of trying to find other specialties also. It's a little hard. It's hard to pick your anesthesiologist, for example, that day of surgery. So you know, us checking the box may not be as valuable, but you know, maybe it's, some, it's important to find, uh, if, you're, if you're a same-sex uh, couple lesbian couple having a child, you'd like a lesbian OBGYN if, if available. or you know, So it's, it's, people need to find the physician that makes them the most comfortable. But what? it's good on one side, but on the other side it becomes 
somewhat scary. I mean, it's kind of like if I were to tell a Jew guy, uh, hey, you're Jewish, so you should, I don't know, have a check mark or have something. I'm like, uh, it cuts both ways. So I'm trying to, I know that these are used to be, but how do we get to the point where we become just regular guys? How so, can we provide that that service you know, that some people need without having to become this separate you know, caste? So the question brought up here is, you know, is there a need for a checkbox, um, or can we pigeonhole ourselves in a way, or you know, makes make an uncomfortable scenario out of out of a checkbox? Right? Am I kind of repeating what you're saying? Uh, what do you guys think? I think my initial uh, thoughts are that when there are health disparities that exist given the group that you that you come from if there are health disparities that exist within the group that you come from I think it's incredibly valuable to have um um providers who you feel are um going to be able to address um your health concerns um and I think until there's a point where we can comfortably say that all individuals have the same health outcomes, um, then I then it's then I think it might be okay to to move in that direction, um, where it just doesn't matter. But I think while there are certain communities that have concerns um, that objectively um, show 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 up in different. Um, markers of an individual's health um, or patient satisfaction, those sorts of things, um, that it is valuable for us to have providers that um, patients can identify and feel very comfortable with. I think you, you brought up a point of, you, you used a Jewish uh, physician as an example, and I can, you know, coming from Miami, where Jews were not allowed to live on Miami Beach or were not allowed to live in certain neighborhoods, uh, and Jewish physicians were not hired at hospitals in Miami, uh, they started Mount Sinai Medical Center. And then Jewish patients who felt marginalized at other hospitals started going to Mount Sinai. And then going off of what Angel said, as the Jewish population in Miami grew and really became a, a very strong and stable part of the community and really the backbone of the community in Miami Beach, um, then Mount Sinai, that service wasn't necessarily needed anymore and it became a magnet center for people of all faiths and all backgrounds to come to. And so in a perfect world, you would utilize the checkbox, if you will, I think in the beginning, and then hopefully if the playing field is ever leveled or evened out for everybody, then it won't be necessary anymore. Go ahead. Sarah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, the event that there is prejudice from patient, how does the faculty or administration support the provider? So if, if, if a patient discriminates against a physician, how is their support for the physician themselves? Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, I think that we are able to, uh, you know, so we have risk management, we have other um, sections within the hospital. It's not just a discrimination on, you know, you know, being gay or being, you know, any other, um, anything on, on that spectrum. Really, a lot of times it can be from aggressive patients. There are measures in order for uh, parents. I work mostly with children, so parents who are, you know, very aggressive, very out of control, very threatening, there are ways that the system is able to chime in and step in and either remove that physician from the care of that individual uh, and provide somebody else there. there you know, the, the institution is actually very good at supporting the physicians and saying to the patient or their family that this is not okay, this behavior is not acceptable. 
we've limited visiting hours or removed family from the premises completely and said you're not allowed to set foot on campus, etc. So, uh, but not it's not always that blatant, right? We talked you talked about microaggressions. It may just be a very small little jab here and there. It may not be I don't want you to care for my child because you're gay. It may just be you know a, a small little jab here and there that you have to decide, I guess, as a clinician if it's worth bringing up or not. Uh, Dieter, my question, you said you did your medical school work in Vienna, is that correct? And yeah. You, and you grew up yes. in Vienna? Yes, I did. Uh, and maybe you mentioned this, but I was just kind of curious, what was the deciding factor to come all the way to San Francisco for anesthesiology? Um, is it because UCSF's amazing in anesthesiology when you decided to do fellowship? Or, I mean, that's a huge, you could have gone anywhere. So why, why San Francisco? Can you repeat the question? So the question was why I specifically chose San Francisco for fellowship. So for me, there was there were two reasons. I was here as a medical student, as a visiting medical student, a long time ago, and I felt really comfortable here. And then the second reason is just a pure medical reason, because I did a fellowship in liver transplant anesthesia, and UCSF is one of the biggest centers in the world. But of course, it's had the side effect of being a very open and liberal city, where I wouldn't have to think twice uh, telling my colleagues about my ski trip with my boyfriend last weekend. So it did, it did influence my decision. Any other questions? Okay. Well, thank you so much to you all for coming, and thank you to our great panelists. Uh, and a round of applause for our panelists here. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.